This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. And you know, today we want to talk about something that's really fun. We're going to talk about how some of our children's hospitals actually use dogs and they're beneficial to those young patients. We're going to be talking to Laura Sonnefeld, who is the Facility Dog Program Coordinator at Cook Children's Hospital located in Fort Worth. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here this morning. You know, to help our listeners kind of grasp and understand this, can you first define what is a facility dog? Absolutely. So a facility dog is a professionally trained dog that will work alongside um, an employee of a facility. So, for example, at our hospital, all of our dogs work alongside a healthcare worker in their role in the hospital. The dogs are here to work alongside their handlers, and they help provide therapeutic interventions, um, help provide calm and anxiety reduction, motivation, encouragement, a little bit of laughter and normalcy in a very abnormal setting such as a hospital. From Cook Children's point of view, why do you think these facility dogs are beneficial to your patients? The facility dogs are hugely beneficial because they're providing uh, patient satisfaction, Uh, not only patient satisfaction, but parent satisfaction as well. We have lots of kids that are here for the first time, never had to be hospitalized, and when they see something normal that they would see on the outside world, such as a friendly dog, it helps to bring their anxiety down, Um, and we notice that there's lots of beneficial wellness reasons for interacting with a dog that has been researched, and we are seeing those benefits every single day with the work that our dogs do across the medical center. Can you tell us a little bit about the dogs you use? Is it a certain breed that you use, or is there anything unique about these dogs? Absolutely. So all of our dogs have come from two different groups called one is canine assistants and one is canine companions. Both of these programs breed and train facility dogs and service dogs. So all of them are Golden Retrievers or Labradors, or we have two Golden Doodles as well in our program. Um, And they all go through a pretty intense training um, from essentially the time that they are little puppies. Um, They go through training at their facilities with their foster families um, until they're ready for placement at a facility. So in our program, we have three Golden Retrievers, one Labrador Retriever, and two Golden Doodles. You know, when you use these facility dogs, what different departments do they help within the hospital? Absolutely. So we have a a variety of disciplines that are dog handlers. So a majority of our dog handlers are child life specialists. And our child life specialists work across the inpatient and outpatient areas all over our hospital. In particular, we have a child life specialist that works in the hematology and oncology inpatient unit with their dog, Chanel. And then we have another dog who works in our rehabilitation and transitional care unit, and that is Bree. Um, Both of these dogs specifically work with their child life handlers in those two populations. 
And then we also have a dog, Zuni, who works in our behavioral health program. She works both on the outpatient and inpatient side of that program. Our dog, Kitty, works in our care team clinic, which is um, the clinic where patients are coming for um, exams for trauma or physical abuse. And last but not least, we have Steve and Neely, who cover a broad variety of patient populations across the hospital, and they take referrals um, across about eight different inpatient units, um, serving anywhere from gastroenterology to endocrinology to post-surgery, um, just a variety of different diagnoses that those dogs can see. To help our listeners kind of visualize this, and you mentioned inpatient and outpatient in the various departments, how exactly do the dogs interact with the patient? Absolutely. That's a good question. So on the inpatient side, our dogs are visiting kids that will be staying the night, and it could be anywhere from a few nights to we have patients that are here for months at a time. Um, The dogs are able to go in and out of each of the patient's rooms, ones that want to be visited, and they work alongside their handler. So for example, our child life staff are in and out of those rooms providing normalization, preparation, education for the patients that are here, and the dogs can come alongside them to help calm nerves during maybe a new diagnosis education or preparation for a surgery. And then on the outpatient side, we get a lot of referrals to help with procedural support. For example, um, patients that have to get lab work done or have to get IVs or maybe injections such as the flu shot. Um, I work a lot with my dog, Steve, um, on the outpatient side, and we come and help just provide that distraction or that support and that comfort um, for different procedures that have to be performed on the outpatient side. And with those patients, they are getting to go home at the end of the day. It's just more like a clinic visit or a doctor visit, and then they get to go home at the end of the day. So it looks a little bit different as far as we may see a patient once on the outpatient side, um, but then we may see a patient multiple times over the course of their inpatient stay. You know, I know you mentioned some of the breeds of dogs, but just how does a dog become a facility dog? It's a great question. So the two groups that we have gotten our facility dogs from, um, they only will train dogs that they breed um, themselves within their their entity. Um, There's a lot of DNA and genetics that go into that process. Um, And so they're assessing along the way. Um, But for example, with my dog, Steve, he was one of seven puppies um, in that litter. And five of those dogs all ended up getting facility dog positions at different hospitals across the country. So part of their assessment during the training is they take the dogs to children's hospitals um, and they make assessments of does it look like the dog's enjoying their work? Um, Do they enjoy engaging with people? Or do you have a dog that maybe is a little bit more anxious being in a group setting or smelling all the smells um, of a hospital? All these dogs are incredibly smart dogs and very well, can be very well trained, but you may have some dogs that would be a better fit to be in service to an individual and be a service dog. They told us they knew pretty early on with Steve that he would thrive in a facility because he is definitely, he shines when he's in a group setting. He makes sure that everyone gets to say hello to him. He spends time with each person. He works the room. Um, So they knew early on that he really enjoyed his work and that he would be a good fit to be in some place more like a facility where he would see lots of different people um, across many different avenues. Well, you know, I've got to tell you, Lauren, I'll make sure Thomas understands this too. I haven't met your dogs, but 
I think Steve <laughs> might be my favorite. I don't know why <laughs> I say that. He's my you know, favorite you, too, but I'm particular. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you have a program, Sit, Stay, Play. Can you explain to our listeners what that program is? Yes, sir. So Sit, Stay, Play is the facility dog program that was started at Cook Children's back in 2014. We started with two facility dogs and have grown since then. Um, at this point, we have six full-time facility dogs that work alongside healthcare workers. Isn't this a great story? Talk about the human side of healthcare. We'll hear more about the facility dog program at Cook Children's from the coordinator, Laura Sonefeld, when we come back. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We are talking about a wonderful program in Fort Worth at Cook Children's Hospital, the Facility Dog Program. Laura Sonefeld is the coordinator, and this is a program that benefits the kids, the patients, their families, the parents, and the staff. Talk about a triple win. So they have a program called Sit, Stay, Play. Laura, can you tell us what that's about? Yes, sir. So Sit, Stay, Play is the facility dog program that was started at Cook Children's back in 2014. We started with two facility dogs and have grown since then. Um, at this point, we have six full-time facility dogs that work alongside healthcare workers. Um, we have, so they are working together with their their handlers, their people, um, and they get to go wherever their handler goes in the hospital. Um, we have some restrictions around isolation um, where the dogs cannot go, but in general, the dogs get to do anything they can alongside their their healthcare workers. But the goal behind the whole program was to provide just another layer of therapeutic interventions um, at the hospital. As I don't know if either of you guys have kids or have had to have experience where you've brought your child to a hospital, but the hospital is a very intimidating environment for kids and parents alike. And if we can provide just one more layer of comfort for both the patients and the parents, um, then that's something that we want to be able to provide to all of the people that come into our doors. I will say there are definitely times where I walk into a room with Steve and he immediately goes to mom or dad instead of the patient. And most likely it's because mom or dad are the ones that are very anxious and need that extra comfort. And so he really is here. Our dogs are not just here for the patients, but they're here for the family unit overall. Let me ask you this. On the sit, stay, and play program, how is that funded? That's a great question. Our program is completely donor-funded. Um, we The program began because um, we had some pretty big supporters in our community who felt like this program definitely was something that was needed and would be beneficial to our community. And our program continues to be run completely by donors. Um, we have we work with our foundation and our marketing team here at the hospital to continue to reach new donors, to get the support, provide stories. We do have a social media um, Instagram that is pretty popular, if I do say so myself. But that just helps us to get our story out about what our dogs and their handlers are doing here at the hospital. And we definitely completely rely on everything we can in order to provide all of our handlers and their teams with anything they need 
Our dogs are living, breathing animals, and so they have food needs, they have toy needs, they have vet needs, um, and all of that is completely covered by our donor-funded program. No family is ever going to receive a bill for meeting one of our facility dogs or benefiting from any of their services, and we would like to keep it that way. For our listeners out there that may want to help support this program, what do you suggest? Uh, what I would suggest is if you are an Instagram um, person to follow us on our Instagram at sitstayplay underscore cc. Um, that is where you'll see just a lot of our dogs in action, seeing what they're getting, what they get to do in the hospital. Um, but we also have on our Cook Children's website, which is cookchildrens.org, we do have a page that provides even more information about our program overall, um, a little more information specifically about each dog and their handlers and where they work in the hospital, um, but also provides a link for where we are able to accept donations. We do have a wish list of items that are regularly needed by our pups, and so that would be a great place to start if you want to learn even more about what um, the impact is that our facility dog handler teams are having on the patients, families, and staff here at Cook Children's. Laura, we've been through, obviously, an unprecedented two years in our current modern history. As you take a big step back, have there been any elements of this that jumped out and kind of surprised you? Maybe a couple of things that you weren't expecting that were added benefits? Well, I think in light of, you know, still surviving and being in in a pandemic right now, one of the biggest things that we have noticed is that people we have all the time think that our dogs are just here for patients and families. But the reality is that our dogs are hugely therapeutic for our staff as well. Um, we, Whenever we walk onto a unit to go visit patients, I always am very intentional about swinging Steve by the nurse's station to check in with them. Um, providing a few minutes of Steve you know, playing with them or sitting in their lap allows them some levity and allows them to take a deep breath before they have to go back into what is a pretty stressful job. And so I think it's hugely important for people to know that, like, our dogs really are making a huge impact on literally every person that walks into the medical center. Um, And that has, we've been able to, during the last almost two years now, been able to be a little more intentional about spending time specifically with staff, helping them with debrief through maybe a traumatic or a stressful situation. And it's pretty amazing to see our dogs walk into a group setting of staff members and you can feel everybody take a like collective deep breath and you can witness like the magic of Steve just walks around and makes sure everyone's doing okay. Then goes to the next person and checks in with them. And all of our dogs have that it just intuition built into their personality. They know who to go to. They know who needs them the most. And um, we let them direct that <laughs> a lot of the times. Um, And it's pretty amazing to see that impact. Yeah, that is absolutely incredible. You know, I was thinking back, Steve and I have uh, not only seen a few New Year's Eve celebrations in our life, we've seen a lot of decade changes in our life. And one of the things that I remember back in the day is you could smoke on an airplane and they would absolutely (laughs) not allow animals on the plane. Well, now Uh you can't smoke on the plane and you can't have animals. So do you think this is a change that will permeate some of the future for not only healthcare but even how a lot of us handle things after this pandemic has taken so much from us over the last two years? I do think there's been a newfound appreciation for our pets. 
we do often get families that ask us, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, the impact that your dogs had on our child when we were here um, was amazing. We, we want a dog like y'all's dogs at home. And I always tell people, get a dog. Dogs in general have that intuition built into them. Even if our dogs were not trained like they were, I guarantee they would still have the intuition that they do. Um, That isn't something that I feel like is really taught to them. That is natural to them. So we do. You have this understanding that when you get home, for those of you who have pets or dogs, is that greeting, your dog loves you no matter what, no matter how stressful a day, and they just want to give you unconditional love. And so I do hope that people do see and understand like truly the impact that our animals can have on us and truly understand and appreciate the work that our dogs are putting in every single day. And in light of saying that as well, you know, we have some days where Steve's moving a little bit slower in the work day and it's because he has seen and felt all of the emotions of all of the people that we have come into contact with. And that can take a toll on him. He does need to get rest. And it's the same thing for our pets at home. So we do need to be mindful of like, yeah, they want to give us never-ending love. um, But we also need to be mindful of taking care of them as well and making sure they get the breaks that they need. Well, you're talking about the ultimate empath here, aren't you? Somebody that can walk into the room and feel the energies of the people in that room. Absolutely. He picks up on everybody, every single emotion, which oftentimes there's more than one (laughs) that occurs and he feels all of that. And, you know, there are times where he just gets to cuddle up and get into a bed with a patient and he falls asleep and we have people that'll be like, Oh, it must be nice to sleep on the job. (laughs) And I have to be like, well, you know, he is a dog. He gets to sleep on the job, but what he's also doing right now is he's modeling how to relax. He's modeling how to bring the anxiety down in a room. And he's telling people that it's okay to take a break. Take a deep breath. I'm here. We're going to snuggle for a little bit, and that's all you need to do right now. You know, there are some belief systems that we might come back for another life after this one, and some people believe we might even come back as animals. I don't know that coming back as one of your dogs wouldn't be that bad of a gig. (laughs) We we have people say that a lot. They said, these dogs have a pretty good little job. And I said, I agree completely. They get love and attention all day long, and that's usually what most dogs, all they want is just love and attention from people that love them. You mentioned an Instagram account, and a picture is worth a thousand words. How would people find you on Instagram? Um, you can look up at sit, stay, play, underscore CC. Um, and there's a gorgeous picture of all six of our dogs on our profile picture that we just took recently. Um, and we try to post pictures of all of our dogs as they all very much have different personalities and different skill sets. They're all doing amazing work, but they definitely do it in their own way, um, which is another fun thing to, as people get to know about our dogs or get to know them, they realize that Steve is the goofball. Bree is a little bit of the, she's got a little bit of a sass when she walks. Chanel is our matriarch and she is the cool, calm and collected one. (laughs) And it's fun to get to know that all these dogs are very different, but also really excellent at their jobs in their own way. Well, you not only showed us the human side of healthcare today, Laura, you've shown us the canine side of healthcare, and thank you for that. Absolutely. Happy to share about our program as I really feel like it makes a big impact. Thank you so much, Laura. You have been a delight. Laura Sonnefeld talking about the facility dog program at Cook Children's in Fort Worth. Now, there's a side of COVID-19 that has affected young and old, whether or not your symptoms have been hospital-worthy or more like a common cold, and that is an impact on your heart. 
Dr. Srinivas Yalapragada on that next on the human side of healthcare. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. And we want to talk a little bit about COVID-19 and how it affects the heart. We're delighted that we have with us today Serenivas Yalapragada, who is an interventional cardiologist at Medical City Las Colinas. Welcome to the show. Thank you guys for having me. You know, to, to kind of set the stage for our listeners, I know we've heard a lot about COVID-19. We've heard a lot about having the Delta variant. We've heard a lot about Omicron. Just generally, how does COVID-19 affect the heart? In general, I mean, there's a lot of various um, impacts on whether it's um, cardiac illness or things that can cause problems and stress on the heart as it relates to the COVID-19 infection. But a lot of it, in essence, really stems from the, in some patients, very profound immune response that the COVID-19 illness, no matter what variant it is, triggers. And unfortunately, I think we're even seeing it in some of the vaccinated patients as well. And it's it's definitely hard to predict, but, um, but, but definitely people that have either been exposed to another variant earlier in the pandemic or have had some kind of immunization with a vaccine, we generally are seeing them being less sick and having less of the cardiac manifestations. And so most of the manifestations are seen in people who um, aren't as um, immune protected because of that background, you know, for whatever reason, they're not vaccinated or they have underlying conditions that makes them more ill. But but overall, the, the, there's several kind of big things that we are seeing, whether it's hospitalized patients or even in the outpatient setting. Um, probably the most common manifestation or impact on the heart from the COVID-19 illness is going to be some form of triggering a cardiac arrhythmia. Um, in general, it's um, atrial arrhythmias, meaning um, arrhythmias that originate from the top of the heart. So if you've heard of atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter or supraventricular tachycardias, these are all um, arrhythmias that um, originate in a certain area of the heart, in, a, in one of the four uh, main chambers of the heart on the top of the heart. And for whatever reason, this illness, whether they're early on in their infection or in the middle of it or very critically ill with it, or even after they've recovered from the illness, people are developing this arrhythmia and cardiologists are getting called about it. So that arrhythmia is, is commonly seen. It's usually very treatable, but um, it's probably the most common thing that I've seen in, in practice. I think the other variant or um, I should say manifestation on cardiac disease that we're seeing quite often is an impact on, and this is more rare, um, of cardiac function um, where people are developing infection um, in such a degree that they're mounting a very pronounced immune response, and that immune response is being revved up and going what we call systemic, and um, it's impacting the heart function. And so um, the normal heart function is no longer there, and the heart actually contracts and beats a little weaker, and we call that a form of congestive heart failure. That particular variant, there's so many different spectrums of that, and to get in the weeds of that, it's a little difficult to even explain because I think most of us don't really have a good grasp or understanding of it. But we call that in general um, myocarditis or pericarditis, where it's some inflammatory response on the heart muscle cells 
um, that we're seeing, and that's sometimes causing a weakening of the heart muscle. That's that's less uh, commonly seen, but we're we are seeing that um, at, at some times. You know, you mentioned in your answer a really good point. You said even some people that had been vaccinated. You know, I talk to people sometimes and they go, oh, I've been vaccinated, I've been boosted. I'm really, don't even worry about it anymore. But your point is we still need to be careful even when we're vaccinated with this virus. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely would agree. I mean, I think that vaccinations are, you know, an important part of the, the way we're handling this pandemic, whether it's a public health perspective or even on a personal or patient level. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting time when we look at, you know, the way this disease is manifesting, even in the patients who have been vaccinated. But overall, the severity of illness is generally less in the patients that have been immunized in some form. You know, you mentioned you may have some problems affecting your heart as you contracted in the middle of the illness or even after you've gotten through the symptoms and you test negative. To our listeners out there, what are some warning signs or symptoms that they may feel that go, ooh, I may have a heart-related issue? Well, that's a, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of people have sort of a persistent short of breath or sort of an energy level um, issue, uh, stamina issue that, that develops following recovery from the illness where, you know, they've even seen a, their provider, primary care physician, and they've tested negative for COVID, but they're having this sort of persistent shortness of breath. I think there is an entity, we call it long hauler syndrome, where it's more of a respiratory or lung related issue where people just don't have the same energy and they get more short of breath. But separate from that, um, because of the impact of this illness on the inflammatory process and the impact on the vasculature and triggering, I mean, we've, we've seen patients following recovery from COVID develop um, blood clots, you know, whether it's a stroke or a pulmonary embolism in the lung or a, a, a blood clot in the leg. And similarly, they can develop a heart attack. Um, and so if you're developing these symptoms and they're persistent, it's very hard for someone to know whether it's something that will get better over time or something that, that is really um, something dangerous. So I, I think it's, it's really hard to parse through it. There's nothing specific, but I think if you're seeing things overall being persistent or getting a little worse, when you're when you're tested negative or you know you 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 feel like you've recovered from your acute infection and you're still kind of having this issue, I think it's never too early. I think to seek out a medical opinion, whether it's meeting with your primary care doctor or seeing a cardiologist or or if it's you know sort of a sudden thing going to an urgent care clinic or an emergency room. You know, as far as some of the long hauler uh, effects that, that you referred to, many times you can treat it and, and hopefully help the patient. Are some of these long-term, though, where they get permanent heart damage? I haven't really seen that in, in my practice. Um, you know, I, I think those patients that, you know, if it's a cardiac manifestation and it's causing, like we had talked a, bit, a little bit earlier, you know, congestive heart failure, which is more rare from this infection. I think those patients have um, a little bit longer course, even after recovery from the acute infection. Um, but usually the traditional therapies of medical management, which we give for those patients, really improves um, the heart function overall. And um, it's been really, really rare cases where something, you know, we see a, um, a weakening of the heart muscle that is completely permanent. Um, 
in that variety of an impact of the heart of the heart muscle, if that makes sense. So if it's an inflammatory phenomenon and we call it myocarditis, most of those patients I've seen, which are really rare, generally recover with, um, you know, watchful waiting, the traditional management we give for patients with congestive heart failure. You know, some of the younger men that got vaccinated, especially athletes, had some reaction to the vaccine. Did you see any of those in your practice? You know, I've had, you know, I, I hear a lot of in the community, I have physician friends who have had reactions multiple. I mean, it, it's it's not just people of young age or athletes or different, um, you know, health uh, levels. And, you know, if they have underlying medical conditions, I mean, everyone has developed to some degree, some kind of an impact. I mean, when I, when I got vaccinated personally, you know, I, I felt under the weather after both being, um, having the second shot of my series of shots and even after being boosted. So um, I think that's not uncommon amongst um, most people who have had the vaccination, but I haven't seen anything, you know, that is surprisingly out of, uh, out of the ordinary that would be um, deleterious. I think the impact of the, the vaccine is that it's helped us tolerate this last wave very well, just considering how penetrable this last strain has been. You know, when we've talked to other physicians, and I'm pivoting just a little bit, but you being an excellent cardiologist, one of the real tragedies of COVID-19 was, especially when this epidemic first started and became pandemic, many people were afraid to call 911 and come see their physicians. Did you have patients that actually postponed needed medical procedures that you as a cardiologist wish they had enough? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have seen that time and time again, um, a lot more than I actually had anticipated. I think it was more of an issue in the earlier part of the pandemic. But I I do think that as a community, um, you know, globally, I think everyone is getting, you know, social distance fatigue and some of the things that we're trying to do to limit the spread of this illness. um, and I, and I think some people are, have just conceded and said, well, I guess I'm going to come in and see the doctor now, or I've been vaccinated. And hopefully most of the healthcare providers that I'm seeking medical attention with have been protected or whatever. And I'm seeing patients do, you know, they've had, um, maybe, um, an abnormal test that, you know, they decided to postpone or wait, or we're being more conservative on managing, you know, on managing that issue, come in a little bit later that, that has been, um, more common than I, I, I would have thought. We are seeing that. We're talking with Dr. Srinivas Yala-Pragada, interventional cardiologist at Medical City Las Colinas. And when we come back, another major and more silent component of the two-year-long COVID-19 pandemic. Stress has a huge, huge impact. Anxiety has a huge impact on people's health. Um, and uh, we definitely have to do things to combat that and and really, the only way to do it is to be proactive about it. So staying connected with family members, um, you know, meet in smaller groups or connect on, you know, social media platforms, just so that people can avoid feeling, you know, siloed and individual and, and sort of separated from the community. I think that's a really big part of it. And at the end of our next segment, Steve is going to give us the latest update on the Omicron variant and the new mutation, the BA.2, and what's been going on in North Texas relative to that. Also, all of our episodes are on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare, on all the major podcast players. 
When we come back, more with Dr. Srinivas Yalapragada, interventional cardiologist at Medical City Las Colinas, on the human side of healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Srinivas Yalapragada. He's an interventional cardiologist at Medical City Los Colinas. One of the effects that many people have noticed after having COVID is a lingering impact on the heart, and that's what we're unpacking today. Dr. Yalapragada, welcome back. And just wondering if there are any new areas, any new news out on the cardiology front or any other impacts of COVID-19 that we haven't yet considered? Well, I think I think on the news and, you know, the Internet covers this this pandemic really well. I mean, we're I feel like all of us, you know, nationally and even all over the globe are on the pulse of the trends and um, the highs and lows of this thing, whether it's regionally in different parts of the country and, and locally. But I, I still think that um, we still have a lot of work to do when it comes to recovering from this thing, whether it's, you know, medical management for patients who are critically ill with this or um, preventing. But I think a big thing in this pandemic that has been really hard is um, maintaining contact with people and still being um, maintaining a healthy lifestyle and exercising. I think one of the questions that we had just talked about was um, delaying medical care and not seeing doctors on a regular basis or following up. I think in the same vein, we're seeing patients and all of us probably are guilty of not exercising or um, not connecting with other people, whether it's through um, the internet or social media or Zoom calls. And I think overall well-being and just getting back to a, a, a normal is is a very important uh, a part of maintaining a healthy lifestyle. And so if we're not exercising, not going out and jogging or exercising or walking um, because we're worried about the pandemic or not going and doing the normal things we do, that really impacts your susceptibility to illness, whether it's COVID or, or otherwise. Um, so I think just encouraging people in the community to try and stay active as the best they can and connect with individuals and their family to avoid feeling um, siloed and you know, avoid depression and, and things like that. I think that's a big part of us all getting through this thing. We talked to a behavioral health person not long ago, and she was talking about all the different things. She actually ran the department of, of this uh, clinic. She was talking about all the various areas of anxiety and fear and stress that we've been under the, under the last two years. Certainly that has to have a long-term, unknown yet probably, impact on our heart, wouldn't you think? Absolutely. Um, stress has a huge, huge impact. Anxiety has a huge impact on people's health. Um, and uh, we definitely have to do things to combat that. And and really the only way to do it is to be proactive about it. So staying connected with family members, um, you know, meet in smaller groups or connect on, you know, social media platforms, just so that people can avoid feeling, you know, siloed and individualized and, and sort of separated from the community. I think that's a really big part of it. You know, Steve and I were talking the other day about Zika, that mosquito-borne disease that came up several years ago that all of a sudden it turns out that, wow, pregnant women can have long-term impacts to their babies if they get exposed to Zika. And even to the point where I remember I spent some time up in Colorado in an area where there were no mosquitoes, 
and that people would travel there when they were pregnant to avoid mosquito contact. Do you think there's a mosquito out there in COVID that we don't know about yet? <laughs> I don't know, um, but that's an interesting question. I mean, the origin of this thing is 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 amazing. I, I just don't. There's so many things that come out, but that would be very interesting. I, I, I really wish if it was a simple solution like that where we can all live in mosquito nets, uh, I feel like someone would have figured that out by now. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we wish, right? For somebody that says, ah, I'm tired of it, as you said, in so many different ways eloquently, I'm going to go expose myself to COVID because I want to get it over with. This Omicron doesn't seem so bad. For, as a cardiologist, how would you answer that? Um, you know, I, I think it's hard um, to to say that's the right frame of mind. I mean, we, as we did in the beginning of the pandemic, we're seeing people that get really ill who are very, very healthy otherwise. And we don't have a good reason for why those people get very ill and why someone else who might be older at, at quote, a higher risk because of underlying medical conditions that might make their immune system more susceptible to the infection. And those individuals may have a milder form. We're, we're still seeing that. Um, we're even seeing unvaccinated patients who have a milder um, impact on the, Ill the illness on their health. And vaccinated people on majority do, do much better, but even vaccinated people can get really sick. So it's, it's really unpredictable, I think. Um, I think we should continue to have a heightened worry about this thing um, until you know, our public health officials give us the guidance um, forward to, you know, relieve some of the restrictions, what we're doing. But I, 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 I just don't think that's the, that's the right mindset, just considering what could happen in, in any individual. You mentioned earlier about the various impacts of the arrhythmias that can come from COVID, but also we've had the, and you touched on it too, the myocarditis, the inflammation in the heart that has come from post-vaccination. Uh, what do you tell people when they ask about, doctor, you know, if I do this or get a booster, am I going to get myocarditis? You know, I have not seen personally, um, I haven't seen this reported out where myocarditis is being caused by the vaccination. I, I've seen it in the setting of having the COVID-19 infection. And like I said earlier, that's really rare. Um, you know, I, I think it's really hard. I mean, myocarditis, as it as, a, as an entity itself can be triggered by unknown things. I mean, people develop flu-like symptoms, and this is before the pandemic, where they traveled somewhere or they're with someone that was sick or they weren't you know, reporting any of sick, any kind of sick contacts or recent travel. But whatever exposure they had for some reason triggered an immune response that attacked their heart muscle cells and triggered myocarditis. And it's it's a very difficult to thing to find out and as a clinician to say, hey, this is the reason why you had this. But myocarditis is one of those things that it's it's a nonspecific cause in general when we find it and we have treatments for it. But we we sometimes never really know why it happened. Um, and because in the era of the COVID-19 pandemic of people having so many friends and family who have been impacted by this illness with the infection or have had vaccination we tend to think, well, is this the reason why? And we haven't been able to really cause and effect connect those dots. Um, I think most of the time it's a coincidence, but I, I'd be more worried as a provider caring for the patient who, have had, who has had COVID-19 and then developed myocarditis. I think the vaccinated and has vaccinated patient who might develop myocarditis 
I'm not seeing that ever. And if I did see that, I'd think it more of a chance happening than a cause thing, if that makes sense. Very thoughtful comments from Dr. Srinivas Yala Pragada, interventional cardiologist at Medical City Los Colinas. Thank you very much. And you know, Steve, what I was hearing Dr. Yala Pragada just say, it seems that as much as we have learned over the past two years, which is substantial, there is still a lot we either don't know yet or it keeps changing as we learn. You know, that's so correct. It's so much we don't know. You know, we are seeing uh, hospitalizations begin to decrease in North Texas. We're thankful for that. But Omicron is still extremely contagious. People that are vaccinated can certainly get Omicron, and you can be sick from it. So you want to do everything you can to try to prevent it. And now we're dealing with what we call another variant, BA.2, and we don't know a lot about it. We're still learning. There's so much unknown. We do know in Denmark, it's now the predominant variant. It's that going to happen here? We're not sure. It does appear initially to be a little more contagious than the original Omicron. But again, there are so many unanswered questions. And the main thing we have to do is work together, get through this, and we have to learn as we go because there's no need to predict where we're going to be or where this is going to end up. But if we help each other out, if we wear masks, if we do the things we know that work, it's going to make everything better and at the same time act on what we know and what we learn in a very positive way. Thank you for joining us today. What a great show. And how about those dogs? Learn so much from the canines, all the great work they're doing, helping our children. This truly is not only the human side of healthcare, but in this case, the canine side of healthcare. Join us next week for the human side of healthcare. 